Hello, everybody, and thank you for listening in. We are going through my trip to Israel that I recently got back from. I say recently, but it's now been about two months, so not so recently anymore, but so, still recent enough that I really want to keep on with this study and um, with these episodes to try and keep it fresh in my mind because I really do think it's a benefit to people that have not gone to Israel before and even those that have just to get um, a different perspective on it. I've said in past episodes that um, growing up, I've heard of people's trips to Israel, but I was never really able to envision it. And so now I'm trying to take what they've given me in their stories and add to it to try and do something a little bit different. Um, I'm going through my pictures and my notes as I'm doing these episodes to try and paint as vivid a picture as possible. So that if you don't get an opportunity to go, this is um, something where you can still connect with the land, connect with the sites, and um, maybe have a clear understanding of certain passages in the Bible. So that's what we've been doing. If you haven't listened up to this point, I recommend going back and checking them out. Um, episodes one through five, uh, days one through five, because uh, there's just things that I'm not going to repeat over and over and over again for those that have been listening. And I do think you're going to get a lot in those episodes. So go back and listen to those if you haven't. But if you have been keeping up, um, you'll know that we're on day six and we are in the northern portion of Israel in the region known as Galilee up by the Sea of Galilee. And I just want to say this place, this whole region to me was very interesting. It was very orienting for me as far as the land of the Bible goes. And um, sites are so close together. Um, they kind of center a lot of them anyways around the Sea of Galilee. And so you kind of get a very good sense of where you are in relation to other things. And I thought that was great. But also just the scenery is beautiful. The lake itself is is just very um, appealing to the eye. And even though, yes, it was still miserably hot, and we'll get into that in just a minute, um, the, the mix of scenery and biblical ties, I think, kind of really came together to just make this one of my favorite places that we went to in Israel. So that was, that was great. And it's not that other places weren't great. It's just they had their downsides. Like Jerusalem was incredible, but there's so much modernity to Jerusalem that you kind of have to see through it. You kind of have to paint this picture in your head. Whereas in Galilee, a lot of it still feels um, very old. The landscape still feels very similar to what it would have. Um, so that that's really neat. Or like in Tel Aviv, there's a lot of modernity as well. And you just don't have quite the same um, visual appeal as you did in Galilee. It's really a beautiful region. Um, again, not that I didn't love all the rest of the places. You can listen back to the last episodes and know I pretty much loved everything about this trip. And that's going to just continue to be true. But Galilee especially just held a really cool place for me because I thought it was beautiful. And the ties to the Bible were just very clear, um, really easy to make. And even though we were up in Galilee, which is thought to be primarily related to the New Testament, um, some of our oldest archaeological visits were actually in this portion of northern Israel, um, or at least we set out from this region to get to them. So some of them were more north, and some of them weren't necessarily technically in the region of Galilee, but they were close enough to this region that our home base in, Gal in Galilee, or uh, in the city of Tiberias proper, actually, um, was close enough to some of these sites. And so even though it's thought to be primarily New Testament, um, that's kind of a, a misconception because there's biblical stuff that happened all throughout uh, Israel's history. 
and it's not just relegated to one portion or another, depending on Old or New Testament. So that was really cool, and I think we'll see that, um, especially today. And I thought, originally I thought, oh man, we're going to kind of mix stories, you know, we're going to go from Old to New Testament. Is that going to be hard to jump between one and the next? But it really wasn't. It actually did a great job of tying the two together, you know, seeing that um, even though maybe some of the landscape has changed or uh, this site was built on top of that site, so it didn't quite look exactly the same in an Old Testament time versus a New Testament time, um, or you know, even just this existed in the Old Testament and really by the New Testament didn't have much bearing anymore. Um, even though all that stuff was true, it just it still connected both halves of the Bible to me because it's the same land. And so there's still places in relation to one another, and I thought that was really great. And the first thing of the day, um, even though it wasn't a site, was I woke up at 6 o'clock in the morning, which right now sounds incredibly early. Um, I guess it's really not that early. Some people get up quite a bit earlier than that. But for being on a trip, 6 a.m. was was fairly early. Uh, I think we had to be out the door by like 8 or something, but we want to be downstairs for breakfast. So I got up at 6 and I looked out the window, you know, and I was, I was excited. Like this was almost like starting the trip anew because we're in a brand new region and a brand new hotel and everything was just a little bit different. And so even though we're in the same nation still really not even very far from where we originally were, it just felt like we're starting fresh. And so I got up and stood out on our balcony for a few minutes and it was already pretty warm and humid, but the site was just, I mean, Wow, just absolutely stunning. Um, we had a really great view of the Sea of Galilee and then some of the buildings along the bank. So that was great. And there's this mist over the water that I just thought was beautiful. And then I started opening up my Bible to certain parts where the Sea of Galilee was mentioned. And I came across uh, the one where Jesus is walking on the water. And this happens at exactly, I mean, not exactly 6 a.m., but it says. Um, it kind of gives you a, a time frame, like, you know, the Bible talks about like the third hour of the night, the fifth hour of the day, whatever. And so we can look at what those times are in 6am would have been about like the ending portion of this period of time that Jesus walked on the water. And so as I'm looking out over the sea of Galilee, I'm just imagining that moment, you know, Jesus kind of through the mist of the morning a little bit. And the sun's just coming up, but it's still dark outside, just enough that, you know, you can't quite make out everything on the sea. Um, but it just, it wasn't haunting. It, it was, it really was just a beautiful thing. Um, and then being able to read the scripture right there as, as you're seeing it was just an incredible thing. Um, and as I said, it, it was very humid on the water. Normally you get to the water and you think, okay, there'll be a breeze. There wasn't much of that. There was a lot of humidity. And this day that we were going to be going on and touring the whole day was going to be the hottest one by far. They had even mentioned like, say prayers for tomorrow because it's going to be miserable. And they even said, um, I don't know if you've looked at the forecast for the rest of the trip, but keep saying your prayers for it because it is going to be really, really hot. And I thought, oh man, please don't tell me that. I'd rather just not know, you know, and then just be living it and be like, oh, it's hot. But if I know it, then I dread it. It becomes a lot worse. But it was going to be miserable today, 102 degrees, which um, doesn't include like humidity. And it was going to be the far, by far the hottest day that, that we would experience in all of Israel. So 
um, at least we were going to get it over with, you know, relatively early on. So that was nice. And the first site we were going to go to was the site of Hatzor. And this place was awesome. I mentioned before about Old and New Testament being very, very prevalent in this region of Israel. And this is a prime example of Old Testament Israel um, right there for all to see. This is one of the oldest sites. Actually, I believe it is the oldest and most well-preserved Old Testament biblical site um, that's left from the, the Bronze Age of the Old Testament period. So that was really cool, and it's directly mentioned in Scripture a couple of times, actually. And so uh, I was excited. You know, I, I hadn't really recalled hearing the name Hatzor before, but I had done a little bit of study on it the night before, so I knew where we were going. And um, actually, the one thing I remember from going through the just some brief like notes, and each of these sites is like a national park, and so or not a national, maybe it's not national park or just a, a natural park. I'm not sure what they call it, but they have these, like, you can get a park pass and like visit all of them if you live in Israel. Um, but that, you know, they have gates and they have like fees to get in and everything. And they're preserved by, you know, the payments to get in. Um, but the thing that I looked at on the site, which is, it's like the same site for each site you go to, like the same website for each archaeological site. Um, and it, it has things like history, archaeology, um, primary, like things to see there. And so I really found those sites helpful. Um, and, and the one thing on the site that I remember seeing was about the cistern, which uh, just where they would keep water. It's basically a big constructed hole in the ground that was dug far enough down that they could um, potentially they could they could reach water there if it was like a well cistern but most cisterns were just big holes in the ground that they would put put water into so that it would keep cool and they could have access to it in their city so there was a cistern there and it said it was at the lower portion and there was going to be quite a bit of walking and so I read that and my dad was like, yeah, man, we just went to a cistern in Megiddo and it was way down there. And I'm not sure that I need to go down another one. And sure enough, we did end up going down it. Um, but I'll talk about that in a little bit because that was kind of the end of our trip. Um, but biblical Hatzor, this was a strong and very well-established Canaanite city. Joshua actually lists it as the chief of kingdoms in this region. And for a long time, just reading that verse, scholars disagreed on this. They're like, no, 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 no. Joshua's like way over inflating it. This isn't biblically or this isn't historically accurate. Um, he's making it seem like it was so much bigger because he defeated it. And so he wants to kind of trump Israel up as some great thing. But actually, uh, this is a really cool example of the Bible bearing itself out to be true. Um, because after more archaeological excavation and historical research, Joshua has said something true here. Um, so Egypt lists Hatzor as like one of its primary places to trade with. And there's a lot of kingdoms in the area, but it doesn't like some of the records from Egypt, which are very well documented records, only list Hatzor. And it was also on a prime trade route from Mesopotamia, which is why Israel kind of wanted it in the first place. I mean, obviously it was still in the promised land of Israel that God told them to go and take. Um, but this would have been 
definitely a place that they would have had their eyes on because of its very, very prime location for trade. But also, when they first excavated, um, they excavated a portion of it and thought, okay, this is, you know, this is a nice site, definitely from the Bronze Age of the biblical period. And um, yeah, this is Hatsor. We can see it, but it's not that impressive. Well, they kept on digging and they found an entire second level to this city. So there's like a top of the tell level and a base ground level. And all this together makes this site probably a place where there would have been, uh, let me just check the, uh, I think I had the right number, but I just want to make sure that I don't um, say the wrong number. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, in the Canaanite period, both the upper and lower city together, when they when they found this, they estimated that it probably had between ten and fifteen thousand people. So this was huge for an ancient site, especially remember in this time you've got a lot of nomadic people, um, Israel themselves kind of being one after they left Egypt. They're wandering in the wilderness. Um, so there's nomadic people, and then there are kingdoms, but they're not as large as like a modern day city. Right. I mean, first of all, the population isn't that big um, as a grand total on the earth. But uh, at this time, cities were, you know, not quite 10 to 15,000 people in just your average city. So this was huge, massive. And when they kept on excavating, not only was it just top and bottom portion of the city that they found, but this whole thing spans something like 200 acres. And so it's it's massive and they would have had a ton of farmland they would have had they would have been very productive they're not just like a midpoint on the trade route they are like an active member of the trade system going on in the world at this time and so you know you can read the biblical account and hear about Canaan and it's like yeah those are the people that Israel drove out but we need to not forget that like these were some very well established people at this time, I mean, they are trading with some of the biggest kingdoms um, in the world, like Mesopotamia and Egypt. And so they're no slouches. And the fact that Israel was able to overtake them, I see personally as a miracle. Um, other people might just say, wow, that's amazing. But I mean, either way, truly, it is an amazing thing that, that shouldn't be ignored. So uh, Joshua saying that Hatzor was one of the chief kingdoms in the region. That is no longer disputed based on everything they've uncovered. And this is why archaeology is so important. Some people, I think that a lot of well-meaning people, when they study the Bible, uh, what I think, you know, if they have like a background in faith, they are already operating under the assumption that the Bible is true. And so they don't feel that they need... Um, any sort of extra evidence, right? It's like, okay, well, archaeology says this, what should I care? Because I already believe that the Bible is true. And that's great. Um, I think it's that's a good place to operate from in the sense that God expects you to trust his word and trust him and he's preserved it. Um, but honestly, like if the Bible said something and like, like how much of it would have to be proven to be not true for you to say, okay, this is suddenly a problem. Um, I think we need to ask ourselves that because the reason we can rely on the Bible um, as God's word is because he's proven it to be his word. He's, it says he declares the end from the beginning so we can look at prophecy. Um, he's inspired his people to write the word throughout time. And we should be able to look at history, look at archaeology, and it should be verified. Now, I do think that 
Some people come up with certain things that are like contradictions, and we can look at those on a case-by-case basis. I don't think the Bible contradicts itself. There's been a lot of good study done on that. But the more proof we have, um, the better it is. Not just for us. If you want to believe and um, you don't feel like you need to know the archaeological evidence, that's fine. I'm not saying you have to have it. But it's a really good thing to have as a testament to the Bible's trustworthiness for other people that aren't coming from a background of faith already. This this kind of thing really, really does help people um, trust the accuracy of Scripture first, and then maybe that can build into um, a type of faith as they study more in depth into it. So I don't think we should be talking down any of the studies surrounding the biblical text, because I do think they're all important. And you never know what you might come across that someone has quote unquote disproven about the Bible. Um, And it might shake you for a minute. You know, it's like, wow, the Bible that I trusted that I've not really studied into the accuracy of says this, but in reality, this happened. And if you don't understand like why people are making certain claims against the Bible or, um, you know, maybe something done about a certain study. Like if, um, if the Bible claims that this city was in this area and then we look in that area and there is no city, it's like, okay, well, if you understand nothing about archeology, span you might not understand that there could have been another city built on top of that. And we might not have as much archeological evidence for that site. And so to have no knowledge of any of these studies surrounding the biblical text could actually hurt you in the long run. If you, Um, Find yourself in a place where you don't know how to explain something to yourself or to another person and they have more information than you do. So I think it's really cool when archaeology bears the Bible out to be true. It happens time and time again. And just the last thing I'll say about that, the the thing is, though, sometimes science or archaeology kind of has to catch up to the Bible. Like in this example, um, you know, Joshua says Hatsor is a chief kingdom. And science and archaeology says, no, it's not. It's pretty clear that it's not. It's very evident from our study that it's not. All they had to do was dig a little deeper, you know? And so don't take every archaeological find to mean that, well, the Bible's proven or disproven. You can't hang your hat on any one piece of evidence because things change over time. But I do think overall, as a cumulative case, archaeology will bear the Bible out to be true. And I think it has uh, up to this point. So that's something just just to note as like a side thing as you're studying your Bible and studying websites or, you know, any sources that you might find around biblical study. So at Hatsor, what are we seeing here? Um, A couple things of note. The first thing is um, a Solomonic gate, and this is Israel specific. So what a Solomonic gate is, is it's believed to be an invention by Solomon, um, who's said to be the wisest man to ever live. And it's a, like, imagine a gate to a city. And when you walk through this gate, instead of just being on the other side of the wall, there's kind of a hallway that you go down. And you walk straight down this hallway. And on either side of you are um, kind of outcroppings to the left and to the right. So little half hallways or enclaves on either side. And there's maybe two or three of these on either side of the hallway that you're walking down. And so any enemy that breaks forward from the from the wall of the city or, or maybe breaks down the doors or whatever, enters into this hallway and is going to get attacked from either side from people hiding in these enclaves. But not only that, 
um, as you walk forward in this hallway that would have just been, you know, attached to the city gate itself, it doesn't just open up into the city. It takes a turn either left or right so that if you are on horseback, you can't just charge into the city. You've got to slow down enough to be able to make these sharp turns so that the people on the inside can then, uh, you know, you, you slow down so they have enough time to take you out. So it's just one last line of defense um, for the gates of a city. And Hatsor has these gates, these Solomonic gates. Um, obviously, this wouldn't have been by the time of Joshua, but Hatsor was a city in Israel for a long time after this. So uh, that still checks out. There's also, uh, in some of the archaeological ruins, there is a burn layer. And what I mean by that is literally a place that we can see was burned up. And how we know this, you know, it's, it's rock. So how do you, how do you burn rock? Um, that's a hard thing. I don't really understand it either, but at this time, you know, there's roofs that are made of like thatch and straw. And so this stuff would have been burned up for sure, as well as anything in the homes or in the buildings. But, uh, something really interesting is the construction of Hatsor was built in a three-tiered system. So on the bottom, you had mud brick, and then in the middle, you had this layer of wood, and then on top, you had another layer of mud brick. And there was, obviously, none of this is preserved from all that time ago, um, especially because Joshua very clearly says he burned it down. But they have reconstructions of this at the site, um, they illustrate it really well. It's not like three even layers by any means. Um, there's like a thick layer of mud brick, maybe up to about your knees. And then there's the smaller layer of wood, just like kind of one plank all the way across. And then on the top, there's um, mud brick as well, but kind of a different kind of it actually. And our guide brought up the fact that uh, the reason that they would put this wooden layer in between is it would act as a sort of stabilizer um, and they would, the, the top portion of mud brick, I believe, um, was of a different kind of, like they baked it differently than the bottom layer. The bottom layer was much harder and the top layer was, um, it was still very hard, but a little bit more brittle and a little bit more, um, you know, it's just the same, same situation as like making a foundation for a house. And so they, they'd put this this very, very hard stone at the bottom, then a layer of stabilizing wood, and then um, they could build more mud brick on top of that pretty high because of the flat, even surface that the wood um, allowed them to have in the middle of this of this wall layer. And what's interesting about that is when Joshua claims to have set fire to this place, um, this fire that they, I mean, they see archaeologically, there was a destruction layer here. There was a fire that went through this place, but it burned up all the wood very specifically. So yes, it also baked the clay and made it brittle and it could fall over easily, but it burned and charred the wood. And we have that destruction layer still to this day. And uh, archaeologists actually say this fire burned hotter than like a normal fire. They think because uh, there was a lot of olive oil around and that made it burn hotter. But then also this wood layer uh, helped it to burn quite a bit longer and stronger as well. So just another point of uh, authenticity for the Bible that I think is worth mentioning. 
Um, so not only does it speak to this being the correct place that, that Joshua did in fact burn, but also uh, that it was destroyed at some point because we can see a destruction layer. Uh, the third thing we saw here after this, like we kind of went up the hill um, past some market areas and then we saw like an altar that was there and we went into this big palatial building, which is where we saw the three tiered walls. And uh, after that, you know, from that from that palatial building, we read um, the account of Joshua coming up against Hatsor and attacking it and defeating it and burning it down. But uh, after that, we walked outside again. And remember, we're in different groups. So all four groups are at Tel Hatsor because it's a huge place. But we're just kind of going in a staggered way, like crisscrossing past each other. So every once in a while, you'll be in a building. And then as you're coming out, another group will come in. And that's just kind of how we managed all the people in one site because it, it was a big place. Uh, but after that, after the, the palace, we went to um, the cistern. And I just thought this was kind of funny, but uh, when we were going down it, I think like my dad didn't really realize that we were going down it because the guy just says, okay, we're going to be moving on over here. He doesn't say like, for those of you that saw that we were going to be walking down a billion stairs to the cistern, this is now the time we're going to be doing that. So suddenly we're just going down some stairs kind of unassumingly. And before you know it, we're headed down into the cistern. And my dad's like, you've got to be kidding me. I didn't know we were going down this. I was... Like he was all ready to be like, nah, I'm not going down there again. Cause it was a long way down. And at this one, interestingly at Megiddo, um, I kind of forget exactly how many stairs it was down, but after people had trouble going down and then back up at Megiddo, our guide was like, okay, well this one at uh, Hatsor won't be as difficult, so it'll be okay. I found this one way more difficult um, because even though like stairs proper, there might not have been as many. The stairs to get down to the stairs, there was quite a bit of those. And so we walked down quite a ways um, to get to this cistern. And I still thought it was awesome. Every time we went to a cistern, I was just uh, incredibly amazed because it's, it's kind of like when you're at an archaeological site, a lot of it is torn down. And even though they've done a lot of reconstruction to build it back up, it's a shadow of its former glory. You know, you can't really tell how high up something was or how large a building was. You can kind of just see the perimeter of it. And so looking at the cisterns, though, a lot of those are still very well preserved because they're under the ground. And so seeing the enormity of the cistern gave me a good sense of the enormity of the city, not just in population, but in what they were capable of building. Um, because they had to dig into the ground, you know, I mean, it was a long way and we fit, you know, all of us down there, but I guess, you know, the real problem with, uh, the real problem with this site was that it was just like one staircase leading straight down and then you turn right back around and go straight back up. So there's not a lot to see once you're down there, you're just kind of descending into a hole. Um, and you can, you can see, um, I got a picture pulled up right now just for my own reference. So you walk from the top portion of Hatsor, the top city area. And then off to your left, you can see this giant square hole in the ground. And when I say giant, I mean like maybe, maybe half a football field in length, um, about 50 yards by 50 yards, a big square. And there's a staircase in just one corner of it. And that staircase goes down quite a bit, but you, in order to get down into that, 
big square hole area where the staircase even is, you got to go down quite a bit of stairs and then around it to get to the, the other side of it. So just, it took some time to get down to it. Then once we're at the staircase, uh, it was just a metal staircase kind of following along the path where um, the original staircase was. So that was kind of cool because you can see what they would have walked down. And to be honest, it was um, quite significantly like steeper and slipperier. I mean, it, it looked a little treacherous, honestly, to walk down the stone stairs. Now, of course, that's been eroded over time, and I'm sure they're, they used to be a lot more crisp and everything, but looking at them then, I thought, man, I, I wouldn't want to walk down like that. I'm glad we have like well-made, even-spaced stairs to go down. But we did. We just went down this giant hole, saw a little bit of water at the bottom, and turned around and went back up. Some people were not a big fan of that, but I I still thought it was cool. You know, in hindsight, my muscles don't hurt. I'm not tired from the walk, so worth it. Even though at the time it was like, this is, you know, this is quite a ways down there. So once we made it back to the top, um, from, the, from the bottom portion of this site, all the way back to the top portion, uh, the, the last thing to see there before we left the site was this 12-pillared, um, Israelite home. And this is a construction common throughout Israel for specifically Israelite dwellings. They do think they got it. They got the idea from the Canaanites because there are some sites where it's very clearly Canaanite and there are these homes there, but it became very signature of Israel to build these homes. And basically it's just 12 pillars, um, all standing up like rectangular pillars and they, I mean, it's hard to, it's kind of hard to explain because I can't even really get a good picture of it. All I know is I'm looking at this big square flat area with 12 pillars in it. That's all I can see. Now, if you go online and type in like 12 pillared Israelite home or I don't know, whatever, um, there's, there's a few of them. There's one in the land of Goshen. There is, which is like more in, in Egypt. There's one in Jerusalem. There's one in Beersheba. Um, and then there's, there's this one here at Hatzor. And this one in Hatzor is the thought to be around, um, a thousand BCE, which is just absolutely insane. I mean, think about this, a, a thousand BCE, that means like over 3000 years ago. And for some reason, just saying 3000 doesn't sound like it's that long. Like, I mean, I'm just thinking, you know, if I were in America and I went to some of our oldest sites, I would treat them with care, right? Like I would, you know, you don't go to independence hall and just like slap the Liberty bell, you know I mean? Some people touch it, whatever, but I'm all for touching whatever you can. When you go to some of these sites for me, it like connects me to the history and I think it's cool, even though people hate that I do it. Um, but you know, those aren't even nearly as old as some of the things in Israel. So 3,000 years ago, as an American, uh, with American history in mind, I just can't really even comprehend it. Even though academically, um, I understand that time did go back to that point. Uh, and, and, you know, I might even say like, oh yeah, this is from 1,000 years ago, 2,000 years ago, whatever, or the time of, you know, Tel Hatzor, 1,000 BC. Like I'll say those numbers without really thinking much. And yet to actually you know, walk myself back through history, like, 
you know, generation at a time or or era at a time, to get to 3,000 years is honestly just kind of nuts. So the fact that I'm standing there and can like walk amongst these sites and like touch the stones and they're just like, yeah, I mean, they'll hold, don't worry. They've held for 3,000 years. I think they'll hold by you touching it. So you can really get up close and personal with some of these sites. But these 12... Uh, pillars would have separated the house and there would have been dividers in between into basically four sections. It's also known as a four room house. And you'd have like a a main area, uh, an area off to the left, an area off to the right, and then a back portioned area, which would have kind of been an overhang. And I mean, they're they're used for different things. Um, I'm just going to read what it says here on this site um, about this Telhatsor um, site specifically. It says the four-room house at Hatsor, characteristic of the Israelite period, has a central courtyard and rooms on three sides. Um, domestic activities including food preparation, cooking, baking, and various other crafts like oil press um, for olives uh, were conducted on the ground floor while living quarters were located in the upper story. The central chamber on the western side served as a pantry and could be accessed only from the second story by means of a ladder. So, um, you've got two stories here also, which is interesting. For some reason to me, when it was 12 pillars, I thought, okay, maybe um, that's significant, like the 12 tribes of Israel or something, but that doesn't seem to necessarily be the case. It's just they weren't thinking how many pillars will we use and we'll build our house around that. They're thinking, what do we need in a home? And then they would, you know, it just ended up being 12 pillars. But I do think it's interesting that across the board, they kind of get... Um, this sense of what each room was used for. You know, it's like if I walked in, I mean, I barely know, like in in my last house that I lived in, we had like a front room and we had an inner like living room area and they're both called the living room. Um, You know, in some houses or like one's the front room and one's the living room and it's one's the TV room and one's the piano room. You know, I, I, I mean, we had a piano in that front room. So it's just, it's interesting because I don't know that going into any house, I would be able to just tell like, oh, this is an office or this is a bedroom. But based on the archaeological um, evidence and the things that they found in these rooms, it seems like pretty consistently across the board, they use these rooms uh, consistently. And so like you could go from one site to the next and you know that, okay, on the right side, this is where the oil press would have been and this middle area would have been used for this. And it's, I don't know. I just think that's interesting. Um, kind of gives a little insight into the home life of Israelites and what was popular building at the time. So I guess this has been, uh, Israel HGTV. Uh, I guess that's, that's all I'll really say about that. Um, so that, that's Hatsor. And while we're there, you know, the main focus seemed to be on Joshua's defeat of the King of Hatsor. And our guide pointed out across the valley, it's called the Hula Valley. And, uh, it was just really beautiful down below. And he showed us how far after Joshua in Joshua 11, um, it says he attacked them and then they fled and they chased them as far as a certain place. And he pointed off across the valley. He said that would have been about to the base of that mountain over there. And it's like 30 miles. And the idea of, I mean, the idea of climbing this hill, fully armed, ready to attack, that already was a lot. You know, all we did was walk down in the cistern. We're like, okay, we're done. But, you know, these guys, they like marched up this hill with a whole army. 
fought and then fought so valiantly that they won. They, they beat this well-defended, fortified city and then chased them 30 miles back down and across the valley and partway up a different mountain. That is dedication, and it shows, I mean, they were incredibly fit, and it was no easy thing. And this actually lends accuracy to a different account of Hatsor, um, when uh, J.L. defeats Sisera, and he's the he's kind of the leader of the army of Hatsor, which incidentally um, poses some biblical problem, because we have Hatsor being uh, a Canaanite city, um, that is defeated by Joshua. And then later, this same place is said to still kind of be occupied by Canaan. So how is that? If Joshua came in and burnt it down, defeated its king, and then they all fled, how then years later, and no one's really sure how many years later the judges um, reigned, or specifically Deborah from Joshua, but during this period, Deborah and Barak, you know, they're going against Canaanites. And it says that once again, they're going against the king of Hatsor, and this Sisera, who's the leader of the army, is the one that goes into battle with them. But you know, all around this area, there's all this valley on any side of this tell that you look. And so uh, when JL is running and fleeing for his life, or no, sorry, when Sisera is running and fleeing for his life, and he's looking for a place to turn off into to rest for a while, you know, you think, Cicero, how stupid do you have to be? Like, keep running, you know? I mean, you already made it this far. You want to live, keep going. But there is a long stretch of land in between anything. And so, you know, he sees a tent. He knows this tent to be a person that um, is relatively friendly to the king of Hatsor. And so he turns into that tent. And that's where JL ends up killing him with a tent peg. Um, but, you know, just, just lend some biblical accuracy to that story and give some color to it, you realize like, okay, he's not just running and looking for any old place to hide. He's probably running for quite a long time because after he fled from his army, um, there's not a lot of places to hide out on the valley plain there. So that's just an interesting thing that I've been thinking of as I've gone back over the site itself. So then we left Hatsor. We were pretty glad to do it because it was hot and there wasn't a lot of cover at Hatsor. And the next site we were going to was the Mount of Beatitudes. So from the oldest place you could possibly be uh, in the Old Testament, or at least one of the oldest, um, we'll actually visit one older one in just a few days. But um, So one of the oldest sites in the Old Testament, all the way to the New Testament, and you're refocusing to think about Jesus Christ and him living in Galilee and preaching in Galilee and drawing multitudes after him. And this is where we're going next. In this Mount of Beatitudes, um, there's some disagreement on whether or not this is the actual site. It's really hard to say because there's no like specific landmark other than the fact that it's around the Sea of Galilee, which this site is. Who's to say exactly the location? There's not a sign somewhere they can dig up that says, uh, this is where Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. It just, it just doesn't work that way. But at any rate, this is the traditional site. This is where the Catholics believe it happened. And, um, you know, I, I don't know whether it was or not. It didn't really matter. Um, for me, this was just a place to reflect on that portion of scripture, um, realizing that it was, it was in this area. Um, it didn't matter to me so much that it was in this site or like Jesus stood on this rock to give it. Um, I was just there and realizing that, okay, everybody here is thinking of the Beatitudes 
and remembering Christ's sermon and remembering his words and kind of getting a picture of the landscape that the crowds would have looked out on. And all of that is accurate. So um, I was okay with that. That didn't really pose much of a problem for me. And this church really is beautiful. I mean, I, I thought it was stunning. Um, it was built, you know, it's, it's rather new. It's not an old church um, as far as Israel standards are concerned. It was built in 1938 by a man named, let me see, I have his name, Antonio Barluzzi. And interestingly, it was partly financed by Benito Mussolini. So I'm not going to say anything about that, but that is a name people know. And how interesting that he financed a church that I visited. But it was beautiful. And this Italian architect, Antonio Barluzzi, did an awesome job. Um, He used some basalt stone, which is this really dark black stone that is common to the region of Galilee, especially around the sea. And so it's got this like uh, beautiful contrasting stone where you've got basalt and then white marble or um, like kind of a sandy marble all the way around it. That makes a really beautiful contrast. And so as we're there, um, we read through the Beatitudes and just kind of take in the scenery, walk around the church. You know, there's nothing to see archaeologically here. It was, again, just to be in mind of that scripture. And uh, it's interesting, this this whole church has eight sides to it, one for each beatitude. And so you'll see people around each side kind of focusing on, on each one. And even though I don't know if this was the same exact site that Jesus was, I did take some dirt from this place and rub it in that part of my Bible. So um, in Matthew 5, when Jesus gives a Sermon on the Mount, and it's not dirt that was, you know, the dirt that I have from some places is a little bit more circumspect and at others it's a little more authentic. So like at Hatsor, I took it from like the ground at the altar and like, you know, that is exactly where the altar was and uh, it is, you know, legitimate dirt from the ground there. At the Mount of Beatitudes, I like reached in a, like a raised garden bed and just took some dirt and mulch and rubbed it in there. Um, but I wanted to remember the place cause it, it was beautiful. It was very good for meditating and just thinking on the scripture. And I walked around the building and, and, uh, yeah, it was just, it was really nice. I thought it was a, a pretty church and something, something worth seeing. It's also, um, just interesting because we would we would see this site later from farther away and get kind of an overview of it, um, but you start to get a sense as you're here of how everything in this area is overlooking Galilee. Now, Hatsor wasn't, that's a different thing, but a lot of the New Testament sites are right around Galilee. They're, they're within walking distance, and so for the first time, you know, in all the sites before this, when it was like, oh yeah, this person traveled from here to here, I'm like, they walked all that way. Like, man, that is, that's a trek, you know? And then here in the New Testament era, it seems like the Galilee region is a little bit more walkable. It's not just like open desert for a long, incredible journey. It's like, okay, I'm going to go around the lake and you know, the whole sea of Galilee, you can see across it from one side to the other, um, either long ways or short ways. You're in view of the lake from pretty much everywhere. And no matter where you are, you can look across and see, oh yeah, we were just over there yesterday. We were just over here today. Even though, you know, when we took the bus, it seemed like, all right, we're getting on the bus and we're taking a trek somewhere. It was like, well, it might just be a few miles. So you did get a sense from this site just how um, manageable the distances were 
And it's, you know, it's not a small lake. It's a, a fairly large lake, but it's not so big that you can't look across and see land on the other side. So uh, that's what we did there. I also, just kind of an aside, I, uh, you know, the first thing we do in any place uh, when we stop is go to the bathroom and send 500 people or 175 people through the bathroom. It seems like 500, depending on how small the bathrooms are. But, you know, we sent everyone through the bathroom and I was just sitting outside waiting to go up to the church itself. And there was a little snack stand there. And I walked up to him. My dad got some pomegranate juice. And so they had a a bowl of pomegranates sitting there. And he got some of the juice and I just picked up a pomegranate. I said, how much for this? And they looked like, they looked at me like, I mean, that's not even something we're selling. You know, it was just like, we use this to make the juice. But they looked at each other, like these two people at the stand, and they just shrugged their shoulders and they said, $2. I said, okay, fine. So I bought the pomegranate and ate that while we waited. It was awesome, man. I thought it was so delicious. And, um, you know, it just seems like a biblical fruit to me. There's pomegranates all throughout the Bible. So to eat one in Israel, why not? And so I did. It was enjoyable. Got a few weird looks. But then one random uh, tourist came by from a different group. I think they were Asian, maybe. I'm not sure. And uh, he took a picture of me because he thought it was cool. And I gave him some. So that was just a little interesting thing that happened, kind of random, but it was a good pomegranate. And I think in this spot, there was this general air of like, you know, we're all enjoying this, but we had just gone to Hatsor, which was kind of extensive. You know, it was a very wide site. There was a lot to learn there, a lot of questions to ask, a lot of things to see, um, a lot of history to kind of keep track of. And so even though this site wasn't necessarily like biblical archaeology. It didn't have the exact same appeal because we didn't know if this is the exact site or not. And there was that general sense of like, yeah, I mean, we're here to see it. It wasn't like a letdown because it was enjoyable. You know, it was kind of a nice reprieve, a nice break from like the heavy education we got from Hatsor. This was kind of more like open up your Bibles, reflect for a little bit in this beautiful spot. So I still really appreciated it. And I uh, thought it was nice. After this, uh, we went to just a few more sites left. Um, and these should be fairly short, except for this next one. But we went to what was probably one of my favorite places we went to in all of Israel. And that was Capernaum or Capernaum. Different people say it different ways. Um, this was probably one of my favorite places. Uh, for one, it felt like entering into a first century city. I mean, it just... Like it was very well preserved and obviously it had been built over at different points um, and reconstructed to a really, really high degree, but it just, you had the feeling of walking into a first century city. It didn't feel, uh, it felt touristy in some ways, but not so much that the site was lost by any means. And the reason I love this place so much is just, um, we read about it. But I forget how much of Jesus's ministry was done here. Like when I think of the life of Jesus, a lot of what I think about is um, especially his death and resurrection, which is at Jerusalem. And then I think of the word Galilee, but I forget that Galilee is like a region. And, you know, really a lot of his time was spent here at Capernaum. And so kind of getting a sight of this city And then flipping through, just doing a brief survey of the Gospels and being like, wow, he is here 
a lot. Like this was by far like one of the coolest connections to Christ's life that I think I had. Um, not that there weren't other places that also did that, but for sure Capernaum was just, just really something, especially because some of my favorite miracles of all time occurred right here. I mean, you have um, Jairus's daughter being healed, and I really love that story because Jairus being a leader of the synagogue, you know, he could have faced persecution for um, asking for the help of Jesus, and getting a sense of that was really cool, but also um, the woman with the flow of blood, I think, to me, this is one of the most... Um, it just it makes me the mo- one of the most emotional. I, I think this miracle makes me emotional, just because uh, you know she would have been treated as an outcast and not looked at, talked to, touched, um, embraced at all. And when Jesus turns to her, he has he has no word of condemnation for her reaching out um, and doing what she shouldn't have done. You know, in, in Jewish times, this would have made him unclean. If she had touched anybody, it would have made them unclean. So she's fighting through the crowds, making all of these people unclean. And when Jesus feels that power has gone out from him, all he does is turn around and call her daughter. And I think this one moment of compassion, when so many would have reacted in anger, I think would have just been so um, compelling for this woman. It would have been such a such a life-changing thing to have compassion after years and years of years of um, struggle and sickness and probably scorn from her community. So the fact that this happened right here, just awesome. Also, um, Peter's mother-in-law was healed here. So I think that's interesting. So this is where Peter's house is, and we could see that as well. Um and there's a, a first century synagogue there, which I also thought was just awesome. Not because, um, you know, any synagogue you see in Israel is really cool, but this synagogue, um, when you walk into it, first of all, it's, it's huge and it's been built over top of, uh, the synagogue you walk into now was a much later construction, um, after the time of Christ, but they still have the ground floor of the first century synagogue. So you walk over to the corner and you can look down underneath the synagogue you're standing in. And there's the floor of the first century synagogue. And this is where, um, presumably, this would have been Jairus's synagogue. You know, this is where he would have uh, taught. And so it's interesting because you're at the synagogue and you can look across to Peter's house like just a couple blocks away. And it really gave this community feel. And you realize like, even though this is a really like decent sized city, it would have been a community. And it's possible that Jesus knew Jairus, you know, like that's a, that's a very real possibility. It wasn't just like some guy from a synagogue in a certain place. It's like, no, his local synagogue leader came to him asking for help. And so they might've crossed paths, but also it's likely that Jesus would have taught here at this synagogue. And so to me, this was just incredible. It really brought a sense of community to the city of Capernaum. It brought a sense of connection to Christ. Um, it made some of those miracles come to life, and we read through some of them. So I thought just this, I think, had to be probably one of my favorite places in all of Israel. I just really, really loved it. Just two more things I want to talk about that happened here. Um, on the road to Capernaum is where Jesus cast out the demon 
uh, from the boy where the, the father says, um, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. And this is another one that always gets me when I read through it because I, I relate to that man so much. Like we often just, we want the help of God. And he says, well, if you believe, I can help you. And it's like, even in that, we need help. We fall so short um, in our trust of him and our awareness of how much he can do. So I really relate to that man as well. That would have been on the road to Capernaum. And then following that event at Capernaum itself uh, is where they came to Jesus and Peter and said, like, are you guys going to pay the temple tax? And Jesus says, Peter, go, go over to the water and uh, fish out, you know, one of the fish you catch and then open its mouth, there's going to be money in it. And so this is right there at Capernaum and we can stand there at the house of Peter. And if you're facing the front of the house, you can look off to the right and there's the Sea of Galilee and you just walk down a bank right to the sea. And a lot of people actually ended up doing that. You had options of like, well, okay, you can explore around for a little bit. I ended up going into the the church there, which over is like directly over top of Peter's house. And other people went down to the Sea of Galilee, um, right where this would have happened. And so you are just in contact with an incredible specimen of archaeology, but also just very, very... Um, heavily spiritual moments from scripture that I think all people go back to and um, they're written for for our edification, you know? So uh, some of these moments, it, it just, Capernaum was a beautiful blend of archaeology and history and uh, spatial awareness of the landscape and feeling a spiritual connection to the words written in scripture. And so that's, for all those reasons, this is one of my absolute favorite places. Um, as I mentioned, other people went down to the water. I went up to uh, Peter's house and then into the the church there. Pretty simple church, just kind of built in um, kind of a big, I want to say it's an octagon. I'm not really sure if it's a circle or an octagon, but you walk up some stairs and then in the center of this church, there is a clear glass floor that looks into where Peter's house would have been. And uh, it's interesting that they understand that this was probably Peter's house for a couple of reasons. Um, it was clearly a place that people visited, um, which they visited it prior to Helena, which is Constantine's mother. Um, when she visited all these areas in Israel and like picked out all the quote unquote holy sites and built churches there. This was a place that the tradition that this was Peter's house goes before that. So Already, I love it because, um, I don't know, anything connected to Helena just really kind of, I don't know, I just don't trust it that much. So to know that the tradition goes back before her is really nice. But in this place, they have one of the earliest uh, churches. So this would have been set up, you know, it's a very small building compared to the church that's built over top of it. But it's right in a cluster of like these 12 houses right around it. And there's a... Um, an octagon-shaped building surrounding the home. And the home itself wasn't huge by any means. Um, but on this octagon wall that's built around the home, which was built in the first century, so just after um, the death of Christ, presumably, or in his resurrection, um, they have things written here like uh, Peter, helper of Rome, and then they have... Um, which incidentally is proof that Peter probably did go to Rome at some point, and there's disagreement about that. 
um, Peter, helper of Rome. And then there's also some inscriptions that directly link this place to Jesus Christ. And they're very, very early writings uh, from the first century. And they this would have been a place, not necessarily that they kept um, church. It would have been like a house church or a place of prayer. And um, so that, that in itself is interesting that this tradition that this was Peter's home goes back um, quite a bit before Helena, all the way to the first century, actually. And this would have been a place of pilgrimage for Christians in the area. So it kind of felt cool to connect myself to early first century Christians, not just Jesus and Peter, but those who, after the events of Jesus's life, went to some of these sites and were just like, okay, this is where this happened. And I'm doing the same thing thousands of years later. You know, I I think that's interesting and um, really connected me to those people throughout history. So that was great as well. After Capernaum, we walked back to the bus. Uh, We couldn't really pull the buses up very close, so we had to walk a decent ways back to the bus. But we just had two more things to see, and they were just relatively short stops. Uh, One of them is just known as the Jesus Boat. And we went to an area really close to Magdala, and they have a boat there that within the last, you know, 50 years or so, I don't exactly remember the date, they pulled a boat, like a fishing boat, up out of the Sea of Galilee. Um, There was this archaeologist guy that, it's kind of interesting, like he really wanted to find something that left his mark on the archaeology world, and so he was walking along with metal detectors on the beach, and even into the water a little bit, and his metal detector caught something, started digging, and he found some nails there. Um, when he started digging out around, there was a whole boat. And so for fear of it falling apart, cause this is from the first century made of wood, which is why we don't have a lot of this stuff around cause wood deteriorates over time. Uh, what they did was they'd excavate what they could and immediately fill it with foam and excavate a little more and fill that with foam. And so they pulled out this boat that's just covered in this foam lining and they literally, uh, it was a it was a buoyant type of foam, and they they literally sailed it across Galilee to get it to its destination, um, where they had built this this building to not only study it but then display it afterwards. And so, uh, for the first time in you know two thousand years, this boat sailed across the Sea of Galilee, and someone actually rode on top of it as they, you know, kind of took it down down the lane there. So I think that was really cool. Um, they had like a video set up to let you see how they excavated it and everything and seeing it was neat. Cause you know, you get a, a good picture of Jesus in a fishing boat with his disciples or what Peter, James, and John would have grown up doing. And, uh, you know, it looks pretty much like you'd expect it's, it's pretty beat up, but, um, still very well preserved. Like you can tell it's a boat and they documented the process very well. So you can, you know, you can see they, they, they weren't just messing with you. They weren't just like constructing something and then setting it up and saying, this is what it was. They did a good job of documenting. So that was, that was pretty neat to see. But after that, um, the last thing on the list was a boat ride on the sea of Galilee itself. And, Um, this wasn't anything crazy. It wasn't like we're getting on a first century fishing boat or anything. It was a, you know, modern boat giant so that we could fit like, I think two groups per boat. So, you know, if there's 175 people total, we probably had maybe, I don't know, 80 people per boat, maybe a little bit more than 80 people per boat, uh, maybe 90. 
So these big boats and they're, they're motorized and it was incredibly hot on the water, but it was still, you know, it was, it was neat to be on the sea of Galilee itself. We'd been around it for this whole day. Um, for the most part, except for Hatsor at the beginning, but being on the water was really cool. Beautiful, beautiful blue. Uh, we can see over to the Golan Heights. We can see over to the Decapolis where, uh, I mean, so much from scripture happened. We'll probably talk about that at a, a different time. Um, and then we could also see from some of the sites that we had seen, like the Church of the Beatitudes. We could look up the mountain um, and see where, you know, it makes sense. Like this could have been a place where Jesus pulled off in a boat or like walked around the bank and then decided, okay, this is a good area because people can sit up on the hill and the the noise will carry up. So maybe it was there, but we, we could see the church from down on the water. So that was cool. We also saw a small church. I didn't know what it was at the time. We weren't getting like a guided tour, just literally a boat ride with very little wind. So my dad was dying of, of sweat, but we did see another church off on the beach a little bit. I took a picture of it so I could look it up later and it's just a square building, maybe two stories tall, not, not very big at all, surrounded by trees. And what this is, is uh, this is where the Greek Orthodox, is, uh, Greek Orthodox Church believes that Jesus and the disciples ate together after his resurrection. We have about as much uh, archaeological evidence for that as we do the Mount of Beatitudes, which is to say none. But um, I still thought it was a cool place, and there is a beach there, so you could you could at least picture that this could have been where Jesus pulled off to, you know, to eat with his disciples after resurrection. But if not, this is still the lake. You know I mean? You look everywhere around the lake uh, or the sea and something happened here, right? Like this is, this is the stomping grounds of Jesus Christ and his disciples. So that was just incredible. And it was a very orienting trip as well, just because you really can see the whole lake and all the little cities dotting around it or, um, you know, churches that dotted the area to mark certain important historical sites. And that was the last thing we did. After this, we went back to the hotel. We had dinner. Um, I tried sheep brains, not my favorite thing by any means, but, um, you know, it was a huge buffet and we're just putting stuff on the plate. And I saw that and I was like, all right, well, it's something to try. It's kind of like a uh, meat mushroom, which is just a horrible, horrible thing to think of. I don't recommend it, but it wasn't necessarily the worst thing I've ever tried either. Um, but that was the day. That was day six. And we'll continue on with day seven, still in the Galilee region. Um, we'll talk a little bit more about the Sea of Galilee itself and the um, layout of all the cities around it as we keep on going. So uh, thank you very much for listening to this day. And if, again, if you want to listen to other days, they're recorded for you as well. And keep on staying tuned for the next episode. We'll get to day seven and keep on with this trip through Israel. So thank you guys very much.